This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes Store, the Google Play Store, or on the Podbean app. You can find more Thanks for Sharing at www.thanksforsharingpodcast.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash healingpaths. That's path with an S. Hello and welcome to the Thanks for Sharing podcast. I'm John T. And I'm Jackie P. Uh, we're really excited today to be joined with Doug Sorensen. Um, he is a friend of ours that we met through our uh, CSAT work. Right. A couple years ago. Was that right, Doug? Uh, yeah, it was. Yeah. So At a, at a, at a lunch um, in Scottsdale. Yeah. 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 So Doug practices in Houston, right? Yes. So Doug's yep. in Houston, Texas, and uh, he's he's pretty. I'm gonna toot Doug's horn because I don't think he'll toot his own horn. <laughs> um, he is pretty well known in the CSAT community, and also does a lot of work um, around shame resiliency and uh, things like that. So that's going to be our topic yeah. today, talking about shame and addiction. So welcome, Doug. Thanks. I'm really glad to see you guys on this Zoom that's now working, and uh, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for the intro. Yeah. Um, in uh, beautiful downtown Houston, where it's not as soggy as it has been of late. So. Yeah. I'm I'm glad to hear that things are slowly getting back to normal there. Yeah. It's but it, it's definitely been slow and and uh, there's kind of this community wide uh, minimizing going on about how much <laughs> it's really uh, taken a toll. So. Mm. Well, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be human beings in a disaster if they didn't minimize afterward, right? <laughs> That's right. I agree. Um, so, oh, what were you going to say, Doug? I was just wondering, um, where did you want to um, start? And, and um, we, can, we can take this from a few different angles. Yeah, there was, there's actually something that you said to me at that lunch that has stuck with me for a couple years and I go back to, um, we were talking particularly um, about our experience with folks in the LGBT community when it comes to um, coming out and being who they are versus living compulsively and secretly. And you said something like, I think that's such a hard process and such a hard decision to make. I think some people, um, would almost rather live compulsively than confront the shame and, and, uh, and come out. Um, and I, I thought that was so applicable to what we were talking about, particularly with that community, but also with addiction in general, um, that in order to start healing, there's a lot of difficult things we have to confront and, and start talking about. Yeah. Uh, we've had uh, um, we've had more than one person come into our practice um, and be uh, much more willing to have an addiction and see themselves as pathological than um, than take ownership of their um, homosexuality and uh, but you know, you guys know as well as I do that working with people who are dealing with compulsive sexual behavior, um, sexual addiction, um, you know, the primary problem is uh, getting people to 
own their behavior, mm-hmm. uh, to, to own it um, and be um, transparent. And so um, that's why people don't show up until they have to. Yeah. Yeah, I find sometimes for clients, you know, as, as, as difficult as that may be to kind of own the label of addict and to face the shame that they may feel about what they're doing, sometimes almost as frightening for them is to step into this place of recovery and being a healed person and stepping into the potential that has been untapped. And so they just get stuck in reliving the trauma that led to the addiction in the first place. Right. Um, You know, most anybody who's in recovery can navigate, um, you know, the dysfunction and the feelings that go along with that, especially the shame, you know, in their sleep, in the dark, above the Arctic surface. You know, I mean, uh, they—it's a no-brainer. It's easy, mm-hmm. um, but the vulnerability that comes from um, being who I really am and acknowledging that, and um, you know, it's like when you opened this today. You were saying, I mean, and I appreciate your introduction, and. Um, You're right. I I was sitting there listening to what you were saying, and I was thinking, uh, there's a part, there's a voice in my head that goes, is he talking about me? Um, (laughs) Because um, I've got messages that go way back that that get in the way of me, that want to get in the way of me hearing that or taking that in certainly get in the way of me saying that about myself. So you're right. I wouldn't, I wouldn't um, say that about me. And um, the, we were talking a little bit ago about um, how does this impact our relationships? It, the notion of shame, the feeling of shame and the, and the stuff that we hear in our heads about it um, really get in the way, not only of my relationship with you, but my relationship with me mm-hmm. and my relationship with whatever my higher power is. It totally isolates me. And um, it's why our clients have so much difficulty knowing themselves. I mean, uh, Brene, my, a lot of my background is with Brene Brown. Mm-hmm. And, um, and she talks about, especially in the last couple of books she's written, but the importance of, of owning our story. And so somebody comes into our office. Why are they there? Because somebody, usually a spouse or an employer, um, has planted their size 10 sneaker firmly on their backside and said, do it or else. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so they're in a shame attack and they're, uh, you know, coming in to talk about stuff they've never talked about and never even imagined talking about. And um, A, they, they are 
doused in shame completely. We're just marinating in it and, um, and believe that what they've done defines them and their mm-hmm. shame tells them that that's, uh, and it tells them with authority. Mm-hmm. And, and so um, it's, I think a huge obstacle for us in, mm-hmm. in trying to get people to see that this is a disease, not, um, a defining it doesn't define who they are and um helping them believe they can change because shame says i can't change yeah shame says, shame says mm-hmm. I'm, I'm toast yeah and if i could ask you to to even walk that back a little bit i think shame is a term that a lot of people hear in recovery especially now um i think due in large part to a lot of the work that Brene brown has been doing around that and bringing that to the the conscious eye. But Doug, how would you, I I think shame is one of those things. We all know it when we feel it, but how would you define it? How would you describe it? Um, I would describe it as, uh, well, well, there's how Brene describes it, which is defines it, which is an intensely painful feeling um, that says we're not, worthy of belonging and um, I would define it as uh, something that feels hot and yucky and just gets all over me and I want to go jump in a hole. Mm. Um, I looked up a couple things here, uh, a couple things people said about how they would define it and uh, it's breaking of an interpersonal bridge. Um, it's being seen in a way that you don't want to be seen. It's unbearable exposure of parts of self one doesn't like. Um, and it's, um, uh, I, I would imagine you guys feel the same way. It's just that kind of all encompassing, debilitating, I can't move, I can't even think. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of visceral sense and um, and so if if we have a basic human need uh, for connection basic human need people come in okay what do you want I want to be in a I want to be in a right. relationship I want to be close it all sounds great um, I said the same thing the first time I went to a therapist's office mm-hmm. and um, But most of us, especially if we're in sexual recovery, also have a pretty good trauma history, mm-hmm. which says that connection is dangerous. At least in my case, that's what I, that's mm-hmm. what I learned. Um, you know, in that part of my emotional memory, um, I've got my dad's face as picture there and my mom's um, suffocating um, enmeshment. And so, yeah, I want to be in a, primary relationship I want to be close to somebody I want to be I want to um, and it's not just intimate sexually it's just to be known and to know people mm-hmm. at the same time my emotional memory says I'm not letting you go there mm-hmm. I'm not letting you go there because it's dangerous and um, and so that elicits shame. We don't understand why it is that we can't just all of a sudden turn a switch and 
get close, get connected. Um, and then if we're dealing with sex addiction, we've got this behavioral history that says, uh, you know, that our shame interprets as being uh, the definition of who we are. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, it's awful. I don't know if that answered your question. Um, yeah. There, there's a lot of components that I think are, are helpful for our listeners to tune into. Like you talked about how it feels in the body, the thoughts in the head, like I want to go into a hole. And you made a really important tie in there that there's a history with our shame. Mm-hmm. You know, you said you see your mom and dad's face and that's the source. And I think that's something important to, uh, especially as we're trying to work on shame and recovery to recognize it works on us on so many layers. It's not a single faceted emotion or experience. Yeah. I, I really re- resonated with, you know, as you were talking about for you, the, the faces that come up when you feel your shame, I can totally relate to that. And, you know, I think for me, I, I have, you know, talked before, I don't know that I was necessarily addicted to any substances. I wasn't addicted to certain behavioral things. Um, but I really, when I started working the 12 steps, I found this um, emotional sobriety that started to happen for me. And that really needed to happen for me because I think when, for so many of us, when our primary relationships as children, you know, in our families, with our parents, when there's trauma there and when there's wounding in those relationships, and then we start to get older. I mean, even for me, like junior high, when I started to navigate relationships on a different plane than I did as a child, there was some, you know, shame. There were these emotions that came in that said, again, like you were saying, don't go there, right? Mm-hmm. Like these relationships are not safe. And, you know, for me as an ACOA person, as I started to create relationships, friendships, um, relationships with the opposite gender for me, it, it became debilitating again. And I didn't know how to do that because I had never learned how to do that. It was never safe for me to do that. And I think there's some, you know, for many of our clients, they come in with addictive or compulsive behaviors and we start to get some sobriety and traction there. But then we've got to get this emotional sobriety that oftentimes I find with clients as they're working on the emotional sobriety, they'll just go back to the acting out. It it was easier to get sobriety from the um, more concrete behaviors than it is to deal with this emotional sobriety and to deal with the shame or the fear or a combination of those intense emotions. Yeah, I, I, um, I remember uh, quite a while back, probably 10 or 15 years ago, um, thinking I was working as a clinician at the time and people would come into my office and fortunately most of them, as they'd leave, they were in better shape than when they came in. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and a lot of that had to do with, um, you know, the stuff that they were doing and the shame they felt about it. And I remember thinking, uh, I'm not going to get this shame stopped. That um, I see people kind of start to believe in themselves and 
um, start to work through uh, some of the baggage that was getting in their way and um, letting themselves be loved and cared about. Um, and I thought, I don't know how they do that. And when I um, trained with Brene, uh, the first thing we had to do was to sit in a room. Um, there were like 12 of us. Um, we had to go through an intensive. Mm. And so, you know, it's, a, it's a, a room, there's like 12 or 13 therapists in there, you know, and it's like a posture fest. I mean, everybody's <laughs> trying to look like they've got their act together and um, inside scared to death. And, um, and we had to go through um, the curriculum, which was at the time connections. Um, and there is a question in the curriculum that uh, I pulled it. I'm going to read it. Um, that you, it's called shame in the arena door. And she uses um, the arena as a metaphor. Where do you want to show up in your life? Where do you want to show mm -hmm. up, be seen, live brave? And, um, and this notion of stepping out into the arena. Um, and the question is something along the lines of, um, okay, so your hand is on the arena door. Um, what do you hear in your head? And what keeps you small? Oh, man. You could have knocked me over with a feather. I still get uh, goosebumps about that question because I knew what I I knew what the notion of being what's keeping me small, feeling small in this world of adults, um, and what stops me. And um, my dad had been towards the end of his life. And he, he was talking with my son and I about um, some experiences and, um, and my dad was, had, was very up close and personal with shame in terms of feeling it, I think, but also projecting it. And, and um, he talked about all the stuff that he could have done. He took pride in all the stuff that he could have done. And what I heard was all the stuff he didn't do. Mm -hmm. All the stuff he didn't take that step to to step out into the arena and try out, mm -hmm. and um, and I thought as I saw that question, I thought that's it. You know, um, and we know that you know we can look at our family tree and see these issues and these feelings that aren't dealt with. They're kind of cascading towards us, um, and thought that's that's it I um, I had internalized you know shame of his and, and generational several generations of it and my hand would go to that arena door to try something new and I would hear um, with authority in my self-talk who the heck do you think you are mm. Mm -hmm. Boy, are you going to show your behind? And um, don't even try it. I mean, and with a kind of this visual look, and it is debilitating. Mm -hmm. And so, mm -hmm. I think the thing that Brene has offered that I think she does well is um, 
she's offered a vocabulary and yeah. a, kind of a framework. Um, but that allows us to, to, uh, to kind of hear it. And uh, I, I'd be interested in, in y'all's perspective on this. And it allows us to, to sit down with our clients and go, okay, um, some, of them, some of them are aware of feeling shame. Some mm-hmm. of them aren't. Um, but we can start teaching them this to notice and be mindful of what does it feel like in your body? What do, you, what do you start hearing in your head? Start giving them some detached perspective on, um, yep, that's what you hear. It doesn't mean it's true. It's what you're mm-hmm. hearing. Mm-hmm. Every time you step out of your comfort zone, guess what? You're going to hear that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not, it's not this innate, this is how it is. It's, wait a minute, that's your brain's reaction trying to protect you, but you're feeling a threat. Yeah, of sorts, um, and I don't know. It's just really, um, it has allowed me to um, kind of step back from that that kind of reflexive autopilot self-talk, and um, and I've noticed too that as I believe that more and practice it. Um, it's easier for the people that I work with to mm-hmm. believe that, you know, it's a possibility for them. Yeah, I, I would, um, I, in my experience, I've, I've seen a lot of those same things. And I would just echo how important it is to have vocabulary around our experience, especially something that um, can be so intangible and, um, that I think causes a lot of people to dissociate like shame. Shame is such a painful feeling for me. Um, I didn't even recognize how much I bathed in it, how much I lived in it until I started having words describing that experience. Like when I would hear Brene Brown talk about disconnection or when I would hear her talk about um, the anger that comes along with living in shame or um, how terrifying vulnerability can be. It wasn't until I started hearing some of that, that I was like, Oh, that's actually my lived experience. I just have never tuned into that because yeah. so painful and I didn't have anything tangible to hold on to and, and uh, start working on that with. Um, I, I think there's really great power in naming your demons. Mm-hmm. I had, a, I had yeah. somebody come in a while back who um, they've got a list of feelings up on the wall. And, um, and so we we're going through the list and he said, you yeah, know, that one on the bottom there, that, that shame, I don't, I don't think that applies. And, uh, <laughs> he, and, and he was convinced. Well, I had seen a family member of his a few years prior, and I, I knew uh, that he was, um, he had a little distorted thinking about um, his experience with shame, that he had been marinating in it. Mm-hmm. But it started so early, he had no sense of it at all. He yeah. didn't think that that was um, a part of his life. It's because because it was so ever-present and pervasive. Mm-hmm. Um, and six months later, he came in, sat down, looked at that thing, and he said, oh, and he just started bawling. Mm. He said, it's everywhere. Yeah. That with 
sorry, go ahead, Jackie. I, I was just going to say, I remember I was, I think I was like maybe in my early twenties and um, I was a big U2 fan. Mm. And I don't remember the year that their Rattle and Hum album came out, but I think I was in my early twenties when that came out. And I remember, um, you know, I bought the, I think it was, I don't know if it was a CD or it was a cassette still at that point, but I had bought it. And what I love to do is go in my room and just kind of listen, lay on my bed and just listen to it. Right. And one of their songs came on, it's called love rescue me. And it came on and it hit me. I didn't, I did not have the vocabulary at that age to explain what hit me. But they have it, it in their lyrics, it says multiple times, but it says, I'm here um, without a name in the palace of my shame. Love, mm. rescue me. And there was something that started that day as I'm laying there on my bed that just started resonating with me. And, um, and I, I play it from time to time still. It's such a powerful song for me. Um, and, and I do, I think in many, many, many ways, it was love in all of its different forms, right? We can talk about love being God. Um, I think, um, finding love, I'm, I'm still always amazed at how my ability to love has such a depth to it. And I had no idea. I had no idea that love could be so deep. And I credit my husband in many ways, teaching me how to both give and receive love um, in, in many ways, right? Love was something that rescued me from that palace of shame. That in that palace of shame, I didn't have a name. I, I had no idea who I was. I was this compilation of a lot of critical voices. That it was even possible. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I the the <laughs> question's coming up for me, Doug, and um, I, I'm wondering, like, what what makes shame so powerful like that to even take away our identity or prevent that identity from forming? Like, why why is that such a a powerful emotion? Yeah. Um, it's it's. Um, I've wondered that too, you know, it, and you've got to figure that it had some kind of evolutionary purpose at some point to be mm -hmm. hardwired in the first place. Um, we talked, we were talking about it um, a while back and, you know, maybe because uh, it's so basic, it is so um, primitive so core um, that maybe at some point when we were um, thousands of years ago when we were more tribal um, if somebody did something in our tribe um, that uh, really put the uh, the members of the tribe at risk mm -hmm. it's not hard to believe that they would be exiled from the tribe mm -hmm. um, cast out and um you know if we have this basic innate need for belonging and we're we're um, exiled we're cast out from um, uh, 
any possibility of that, yeah, that would be um, threatening at a life and death mm-hmm. level. And I think that's how that's how our brains react to shame. You know, my brain um, equates shame um, with. I mean, I've never had a gun held on me, but it feels life and death mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. When, when I'm in a shame attack. Um, the, and so I, I don't know, um, it's like a kind of a, in some ways, maybe a, an evolutionary fossil mm-hmm. that we have to contend with. Um, the, and, uh, go ahead. I was going to say the term over-adaptation comes up to me like I could see definitely at a point in our evolutionary history that playing an important role now I look at how people get relationships we still need a tribe but I think very few people get all those needs met in the tribe they were born into Mm -hmm. we live in such a more connected society and we many of us don't just have to take what's given to us we get to create the relationships around us that we need and we have a lot more access to a lot of different people who uh, may even fit us better than the tribe we're born into. Um, And so when you have shame playing that role, shame says, get small, stay quote unquote safe. Um, But we really need, like, I I think much of our society is safe enough for us to move around in and and discover ourselves in there. And I think that's, it's one of the the opportunities we have in the the world we live in now, but that Mm -hmm. shame seems to do a lot of preventing of that. Yeah, it's an opportunity and also um, and also threatening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I work mostly with men and and um, you know my my son didn't grow up with um, Clint Eastwood and and Steve McQueen, but I sure did. That's mm-hmm. who I look towards in terms of um, how you do being male and. Um, they didn't need anybody. They were isolated. They didn't. Mm. Uh, they wouldn't have known a feeling except rage. Unless mm-hmm. fell out of the sky and hit him in the head. And um, you know, there was no, there was no need for connection in that. And so, um, you know, I think about the beliefs that that I grew up with. Um, uh, you know, in addition to what I learned in my family um, that said, don't need anybody, do it by yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly don't feel anything. Um, and um, none of that was very compatible with um, connection and mm-hmm. yeah. being relational. Mm-hmm. And well, it all felt weak. I like this idea that we're talking about, you know, that shame is kind of this primal thing wired into us that kind of keeps us from putting our tribe or our communities at risk and creating dangerous situations for them. I I think um, one of the things for me, you know, I would say the primary addiction in my life was my father's addictions. And, and I think for him, um, there was probably, well, not probably, there were things that he did because of his addictions that put our family at risk. Mm -hmm. And he didn't feel shame about that. 
And he kept doing it over and over and over again. And he wasn't feeling the shame. And I think as a result of him feeling and acting in shameless ways, as a result, I think me and my siblings, we picked up that shame, right? He wasn't picking it up. And so we picked it up and it wasn't our shame. We weren't doing things that put our family at risk, but we picked up the shame that he wouldn't. And that was very debilitating to us. And, and so for me and my own kind of emotional recovery, learning how to give some of that back and say, you know what, that was never my shame in the first place. So Mm -hmm. I don't have to, I don't have to carry that anymore. And that frees me up to when I feel my own shame. I I hate it. It's very painful. But then I can start to move into this place of saying, hey, I need to make amends about something that I did. And I feel horrible about A, B, C, or D. And I'm taking, I, I recognize it, right? Which starts to make my tribe or whoever I'm with less vulnerable to the danger because I'm recognizing what I did and I'm correcting that. But you can own it. Y- yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when I start to own it, it's not so debilitating anymore. Right. Right. But I think in order to own it, it has to be mine, right? It has yes. to be a result of what I did instead of me trying to own somebody else's. Right. Right. And, and, so that um, you can you can accept, yeah, I can um, I have the capacity to do something that can hurt somebody else, or mm-hmm. um, i have I have um, that you can be accountable, that you can um, you can own that um, and and then clean it up. Yeah. And circle back and clean it up and right. reconnect. Mm-hmm. Um, that the, we can start to own that we're imperfect. Right. And as a result, we impact people in ways we wish we didn't. Right. right. But I can clean that up once I've owned it. If, um, if, if I can um, notice that I'm in a shame attack, um, and uh, usually the first thing I need to do is to kind of step back and either journal or um, I'm not really fit for much constructive human consumption at that point. <laughs> but to give myself even a half hour to um, kind of just notice and um, Practicing mindfulness has been helpful Mm -hmm. Um, and breathe and just kind of listen. Um, And then, um, you know, one of the, you just described shame resilience um, a minute ago, you know, that, that awareness that says, okay, I'm feeling shame uh, in my body. Um, This is what it sounds like in my head. Um, This is where I want to go. And, and just noticing that um, changes the sequence of sorts because when we're going into shame, our cortical functioning is shutting down. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. We're not thinking. We're 
you know, getting out of there. Um, and so just being aware of, okay, this is what I'm noticing. This is what's coming up in me. Um, that's, that very awareness is re-engaging the front half of your brain, which allows you then to start making choices again and mm -hmm. re-engage and connect with yourself and the people around you. Um, it, so it was cool how you just described that. Yeah, and I, I hear what you're saying, Doug, on a, um, a brain level. It's, it's a pretty radical reprogramming that instead of this emotion sending me into a panic, this emotion is a signal that I need to get calm and I need to get slow and I need to get reflective. Um, yeah. Cause when, when shame is nipping at our heels and we're running from it, I think we tend to be pretty self and other destructive. Oh, it's awful. And how many, how many people come in um, and, and um, have you heard this word where somebody will equate feeling shame with some uh, failing in their recovery mm -hmm. that, um, that somehow I'm not doing recovery right because I feel shame. Yeah. Um, just the whole education process. No, that's really not it. You know, um, you're feeling it because it's hardwired mm -hmm. and, and teaching people um, to kind of lean in and yeah. kind of get to know it. And they look like, they look at you like, are you, <laughs> kidding me right. fill in that blank um, that the goal of you being in recovery isn't to not feel this it's uh -huh. right um, it's getting to know it what does it feel like yep. what do you and um, you know as my wife and I um, have have worked on this it really has um, impacted our relationship in terms of being able to step back and, um, and not react. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I love what you're saying there that the, the purpose of recovery is not to eradicate shame. Um, and even the words that I, I hear Brene Brown use, it's, we're not talking about shame eradication. We're talking about shame resiliency. Um, right. it's a fact of life. It's there. And in, mm -hmm. in some ways, um, I think recovery is shame centric, not meaning that it should induce shame or we should use shame, but we're turning and facing a lot of shame mm -hmm. in recovery. Right. It's, um, it's, it's uh, parallel with what we're teaching people about dealing with the addiction. You're not going to outrun it. You're not going to mm -hmm. outsmart it. So let's try something strange like making friends with it. Mm -hmm. And they look at us like we're crazy. Um, yeah. And their spouse looks at us like we're really crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and, and um, what's that other therapist that was on the referral list? And, <laughs> um, and, and so, yeah, you're going to have to get to know your feelings and it includes shame. And yeah. it, it's not telling you the truth. And mm -hmm. if you're going to stretch, if you're going to do something out of your comfort zone, uh, there's no getting around it. You're going to feel it. Yeah. You can't, you can't, you can't venture into uncharted territory without um, feeling all of the defenses that come up um, that say, no, don't go there, play it safe. Um, and they include shame. Yeah. yeah. The other thing I want, I want to say about it is we deal with accountability. 
what we do involves teaching people how to be accountable. And, and, and talk about how that, because I find with clients, when they start to get accountable, they think they're going to like drown in the shame. That's what accountability is going to do to them. And it, that's not what happens. No. So, so talk about that. So, um, it, so somebody's writing, uh, I'm working with somebody who's writing his first step. And we've been talking about um, all of the stuff that's coming up in his head, all of his thoughts and feelings, and how, how just dreadfully painful it is to be writing this with the expectation that he's going to read it in an open meeting. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then he goes and reads it. He goes and presents and he comes back and he finds out it was the exact opposite mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, that people felt closer. It was the exact opposite of everything his shame told him it was going mm-hmm. to be. Yeah. Um, and one of the, one of the big struggles I think in terms of working with sex addiction is, um, the shame makes accountability um, so difficult because um, if and Harriet Lerner has um, a quote that Brene um, uses in um, and I thought it was just me um, that if I think that by being accountable I am um, Acknowledging that um, my diminished worth and my lack of uh, worthiness in terms of belonging, I'm not going to do it. Right. I'm not going to do it. And um, and so teaching people that accountability isn't about blame and shame. Um, it is in their head, but... Um, in reality, it's just about ownership. Mm-hmm. And um, in order to, to be um, in recovery, I have to be accountable. I have to be willing to tell you, hey, this is what I've done. Mm-hmm. And, um, and if I can do that and know on some level, um, I don't have to be sold on it either, but just to have kind of a crack in the seam a little bit of, um, and my behavior doesn't define me. Mm-hmm. The fact that I just relapsed, that doesn't kind of disqualify me from the human race. Yeah. I'm likely to be more uh, open to being open. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think there's really great power in accountability when we understand it as this is an accounting that I give not something that's demanded of me, not something that's dragged out of me. And I think in my experience, that's really been what's turned shame on its head when I do that really counterintuitive thing and I start owning the shame and I give the accounting of that instead of sitting there waiting in fear for it to be discovered. Um, Mm -hmm. I I bring that out into, into the light. Yep. And that's, I, I find as a therapist, you know, when clients come in and will say, 
I need to report a relapse. I need to let you know this is what's mm -hmm. been going on with me. And as I can receive that, right, like they're opening up their brokenness and saying, I'm an imperfect person and this is what yep. I did. And I can say, I see that. Thank you. There's a connection that starts to get established. Now, as we talked about at the beginning of this session, for some of us, that beginning connection is also what opens up more trauma, mm -hmm. right? Because it's that connection is not what happened in our families or being seen as an imperfect person wasn't okay, right? So I find with some of my clients as I can make that connection with them, it also creates some fear for them. Yeah. It's really vulnerable. Mm -hmm. yeah. Really terrifying. Yeah. So um, oh, go ahead. Doug. No, I was just going to ask you as we're, as we're getting close to the end of the time uh, that we've scheduled to meet, um, what, uh, what words of advice or what would you recommend to our listeners who are wanting to get started on shame resiliency and understanding that issue in their recovery? I think, um, I really do think doing some reading about it, um, you know, I think some of uh, Renee's books about it are really helpful. Um, mm -hmm. And, um, but also having people that um, can hear what I'm thinking and feeling, uh, people that can speak shame, mm -hmm. people that can hear it and not um, caretake or um, minimize, mm -hmm. but, but kind of get it, you know, mm -hmm. yeah, that sucks. And um, to have people around us who can be, be with us. Yeah. Who can empathize. Shame can't um, survive empathy. Mm -hmm. um, can't survive empathy and connection. And it can't survive being talked about. Um, but it's going to feel real counterintuitive. Yeah. Um, and the alternative is we drive ourselves just crazy and exhaust ourselves trying to measure up to who we think we need to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Uh, we really appreciate your willingness to come on today and to um, share with our listeners uh, about your experience with shame and shame resiliency and, and helping them that way. This has been very valuable. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Doug. Thanks. Thanks. I really appreciate the opportunity. I think what you guys are doing is great. Thanks. Thanks. We want to remind you at an end of another episode that your story matters. And remember there is something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. You can share your story with us on our Facebook page, Healing Paths Inc. Or on our website, www.thanksforsharingpodcast.com. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. At the end of another episode, we want to remind you that nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Remember the prayer of the perfectionist. Help me remember I can't do it all. Help me to take things one step at a time and that the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I'm learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone, that I can ask for help. Help me to, re to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.